Welcome to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. share with us this morning and if you have your Bibles I want you to take them and turn to the Gospel of Luke again each week we've been in the Gospel of Luke and our series is called the characters of Christmas and uh, we'll carry this on right on through Christmas Eve and all of our services today characters on the world's biggest stage and by the way before we read uh, our text today let me just share a couple of things with you about the days ahead I want to encourage you to walk with us in something we're called welcoming and wise, welcoming and wise. Uh, that is, that's what we want to be in our worship services, welcoming and wise. And one of the things that we are, are seeing is increased numbers of people who are visiting our church and, and checking uh, Cross City out for the first time. And one of the best things that we can do is be in the room early enough to meet those folks before the service began. Uh, often guests may come in and they may be the only ones in the room and we're out there enjoying a good cup of coffee probably, but grab that coffee and, and come on in and find your place and be able to meet and greet the people that come in who are looking not only for a church, but they're looking for great friends as well. So I want to encourage you to be welcome and wise. And the second part of that is once the message begins, uh, which is about now in our service, I want to encourage you to keep distractions to a minimum in the sense of uh, getting out and going out or coming back in. It's kind of easy just to stay there. I rarely ever preach two hours. Right. <laughs> now, you know I never do that. It's always about 30 minutes, 35 minutes. And so we want you to try to keep distractions to a minimum by, by staying for the message and uh, not going out and coming back in. So just those couple of things will help us to be welcoming and wise. And uh, with that, uh, please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 2, and let's stand together. Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read the shortest part of what we'll be looking at today. First of all, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, we all know this as the classical Christmas story, the traditional story that we always read, Luke chapter 2. Today, I'm going to read the first seven verses for just a few moments. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on the way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Great story, isn't it? Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you will speak to us through the characters of this Christmas story. Show us how you're at work in our lives and, and in the lives of all those around us, as well as all those in this story. You're always at work. You're always accomplishing your purpose and help us to be a part of that. Father, we thank you that you accomplished that through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. I know you'd be never able to guess it, but when I was growing up, I was quite the playwright. In the seventh grade, I was in a play in my 
hometown school. Every year they had a play. They had a production, they called it. And one year, I don't name, remember the name of the play, but I remember I was asked to play a caveman in that play. I was perfectly cast as a caveman. And, and I wore something that looked a lot like Fred Flintstone's uh, garb in, in, that, in that cartoon. And uh, I had two words that I had to repeat over and over. They were glub and uck. Those were the two words. I still remember those. I'm great at memorization, and I nailed it. I want you to know I nailed it. <laughs> My big scene was where I had a paper mache club, and I clubbed a female version of a caveman over the head and then dragged her off the stage into my cave, I guess. They probably wouldn't let us do that today. It probably wouldn't be politically correct. But that was my history as a playwright. Now, there were only 75 people in the room. Thank the Lord there were only 75 people in the room. None of them were talent scouts or, uh, or movie uh, makers. And so consequently, instead of, of great Broadway talent, instead of a movie star, I'm a preacher today. And that's how I got here. It was on a very small stage in a very remote part of America and Oklahoma. But I still remember it. But I want to talk to you about the biggest stage on the world, the global stage, where you have a Mary and a Joseph and a baby. You have shepherds, wise men. You have a governor, Quirinius, you have a Caesar Augustus, and all these somehow work together. Somehow God moves all these pieces in place in the right way in order to bring about the message of love and forgiveness and redemption. It's the biggest stage of the world because everyone, just about everyone knows the story of Jesus' birth. In fact, the biggest challenge pastors have year in and year out is, how do I tell this same story again after having told it over and over for 40 years? And sometimes it feels kind of challenging to do that. But what a joy I have had of walking through the characters of Christmas. We started with Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist, part of biblical prophecy. And, and the fact that the angel appeared to this man named Zacharias, and he was struck mute because he didn't believe God. And Elizabeth, of course, was overjoyed because she was older and barren, and all of a sudden they, they are with child, and this child is going to be John the Baptist. It's an amazing story. And then last week we looked at all the angels that announced the news to the wise men, or rather to the shepherds in the fields. And we looked at really a history of who angels were, how they were created, where, they, where they've been all, all along. And we looked at the power of angels and the wisdom of angels and everything about angels. And they're much bigger creatures, much more powerful creatures than we really think about them being. And, and all that helps us set the scene for two angelic encounters that Joseph and Mary have in this little text right here that we've read and how important they are. I want you to know some characters, first of all, of history. The characters in history that this text points out are two political leaders, believe it or not, who somehow find themselves in this Christmas story. Read verse 1 and 2 where it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That's the first political figure that we look at. And a census is being commanded. And then the first census, while Quirinius was governor of Syria, is the second reference. So you've got a couple of people here, Caesar Augustus, which is not his real name, of course. His real name is a different name. It is Gaius Octavius. But Caesar Augustus was the title given to him by the Roman Senate once he was approved to be the leading emperor. Literally, this word means majestic one. 
And this was a political figure that entered in what we know as the Pax Romana, that is the Peace of Rome. It was Rome's greatest season, greatest era for peace, prosperity, and power. Roads that were built during Pax Romana are still in existence today. You can still walk on those same roads. Now, Quirinius was the other. He was the governor during that period of time, and he literally instituted the census that was commanded by Caesar Augustus. Now, it took him between two and four years to actually respond to what was said by Caesar Augustus, and all this means that there's a march of time going on until the actual census and the actual movement of Mary and Joseph to this place called Bethlehem. But through these two political leaders, Mary and Joseph end up in this city called Bethlehem and fulfill biblical prophecy because of the movements of these political leaders. One of the great prophecies in the Bible is the specific place, Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we find this written, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephatra, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Such a small place. Such a big prophecy about this very, very small place. How do you get a Mary and Joseph to that place at that time in the fullness of time? Well, if you're God, you use these political leaders like pawns on a chessboard, moving them in each place they need to be moved for this command to have gone out. Now, I don't think it seems very smart to talk about politics during the Christmas season, does it? I don't think it's smart to talk about politics in any season, but nonetheless, I want to talk about politics for just a moment. I want to talk about the fact that the God of the universe uses all kinds of people, all kinds of systems to point out the need of and the source of salvation. I mean, God actually used these two pagan, godless rulers to bring about the movement that brought these two simple people, Joseph and Mary, to this place called Bethlehem. Just want to remind you, every part in this story has a role to play. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Uh, I don't like talking about the wicked for the day of evil either, but I do like talking about the God who has made everything for his own purpose. And I like the fact that God causes all things to work together for good. That's Romans 8, 28. And that verse tells us that we know God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, I, I use this illustration all the time because I believe it's accurate and I think it's biblically, biblically correct. But I use the illustration of a chess master and a chess board. I've always loved the game of chess. I love the strategy behind it. I don't play much anymore. But as a boy, I grew up playing chess. And it was so challenging to find the ways, the different ways to move and the different ways to, to capture the enemy and so forth. And as I grew older, I realized that, that life is kind of like that game of chess. I have no idea the strategy involved that the chess master has in mind as he moves me on the board from piece to piece and place to place and square to square in certain scenarios, certain confrontations, certain situations, and you don't know either, but we have trust and confidence that there is a great chess master, and his name is Almighty God, who moves us where we need to be, when we need to be, in order to fulfill his plan for our life. And that's exactly what happened to Joseph and Mary. 
There's some people that are grateful for that in the room right now, and I am too. A great chess master. And these characters in history remind us of that. God continues to do that, by the way. He continues to work in that powerful way by what we call his sovereign will. Secondly, I want you to notice the characters of his story. Not just history, but the story of Jesus. It says in verses 4 and 5, Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So we have some hints as to why they're there and who they're supposed to be staying with. They're supposed to be staying with Joseph's family. And it says, in order to register along with Mary, so there we go, the purpose for which they're going, which was instituted by Quirinius and Caesar Augustus. And he was there along with Mary, and then it says he was engaged to him and was with child. Now, we sometimes read those first two names, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, and say, you know, they're just minor players here. But the major players are really Joseph and Mary, aren't they? We know, we know that God is using them in supernatural, amazing ways. Like most, they had plans for their lives. They had an idea of what the future would involve, and it didn't really go in that direction, did it, for Joseph and Mary. Most of us know the story well enough to realize that God took their lives, whatever direction they were heading in, and turned them, moved them into spots where they could play a significant role in human history. These ordinary people were asked by an extraordinary God to have a significant role in the coming of the Messiah. It's the biggest news that could possibly have taken place. And these very ordinary people are used by this extraordinary God, and it's ushered in by angelic visitations. So you know the stories. Mary encounters the angel Gabriel. And then later on, Joseph needs to have an encounter with an angel. First of all, I want you to go back to Luke chapter 1. We, don't, we won't put this on the screen, but I want to read a significant section of Scripture. And if you will, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And I'm going to read this part of the Christmas story from verse 26 to verse 38. And in it, I want, I want to warn you, some of the greatest words in history are on this page. The greatest explanation in the world as to how this woman could be with child while a virgin is on this page in one single verse. This is a significant, amazing set of Scripture. Look at what it says in verse 26 of Luke 1. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I'm going to pause for just a moment here, and I want to remind you that the presence of angels while not unheard of, is somewhat rare. And the last time Gabriel has spoken uh, before Zacharias was told that he was going to have a little boy was 500 years prior. For 500 years, no one has heard from that angel or any angel. Daniel in the lion's den was the previous time an encounter of Gabriel speaking up. And it saved Daniel from the lions, of course. 
there was a minor prophet, Malachi, that spoke 400 years before this moment, but between four and 500 years, the intertestamental period is what we call it, is a time of silence, and all of a sudden, this silence is broken by these angelic announcements to Zechariah and now to Mary. So this powerful, brilliant angel is speaking to her in the middle of the night, and the first thing he says is what all angels say. Don't be afraid. Why? Because the angel's presence is so powerful, so brilliant, so illuminating, so different from any other encounter Mary will have in her lifetime that he has to say, don't be afraid. He goes on and says in verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. All this fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The best question in the world is that one right there. And the best answer in the world is coming. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Amen. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, notice what Mary says. In spite of the shock and awe, in spite of this amazing explanation, which probably uh, is overwhelming to her in that moment, Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Both amazing and intimidating. Can you imagine? Think about this for a moment. How many mothers are in the room? Would you raise your hand if you're a mom? Think about before you had a child. If you were Mary's age, you would have been 15 years of age or younger. You're engaged to a man that's of high reputation. You realize that at some point in the month, maybe years ahead, you're going to have a wedding after the house is built and all the preparations are made that he's going to come take you as his bride. But until then, you're chaste. You're going to follow the Lord. You're going to trust the Lord. You've got plans, though. You probably know how many kids you want to have if you're a young woman in that situation. You probably know where you want to live. You probably want to know a little bit about how you're going to raise those kids. And, and you're thinking of all this. You're thinking of marriage. You're thinking of the wedding itself. You're thinking of where you're going to live. You're thinking of all the plans that you have for the future. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, an angel comes to you, and all of those plans, all of a sudden, are gone. Because the angel says, no, you're going to be pregnant starting now and without your husband. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. And the one who is in you is going to be called the Holy Child. Amen. Can you imagine the next conversation that she has to have? The conversation she has to have with Joseph. The conversation she has to have with her mother and her dad. The conversation she has to have with all of her friends and, and telling the news of what she's seen in the night. And yet she realizes that something has truly happened to her. Who would believe her? What would she say? Could she just point to the fact that she had some angelic visitation and that would be it? No one has heard from an angel in 500 years. You're out of your mind, Mary. You expect us to believe this. 
Now, this crisis of faith that's going on inside her mind had to be huge. She had to be asking all the questions. Will I be accepted or will I be rejected? What will my extended family say? What will my reputation look like? And yet, she says, be to it as it may. I'm the bondservant of the Lord. Whatever you say, I'll do. Can you imagine that level of faith that Mary exercised in that moment where she said yes to the angel? Now, I don't know if you have a choice when the angel says something like that. I don't think it's a yes or no question. It's more like, it's more like how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to believe this? How am I going to move forward? And then there's Joseph. Joseph, who now hears the news of Mary's, Mary's situation. She's now with child by the Holy Spirit. She's met with an angel. And isn't this just like God to meet with Joseph when Joseph most needs it after he's already met with Mary? Mary has heard, and now it's Joseph's turn. And the reality is that before the angel speaks to Joseph, Joseph is considering an exit plan. He's trying to figure out, what do I do with her? What do I do with me? What do I do with our future? What do I do with our family? And in just the right moment, the angel comes and has a conversation with him. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and beginning in verse 18. Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Notice that every account gives validity to the virgin birth. Isaiah the prophet does. Luke the doctor does. Matthew the scribe does. All attest to the fact that this was a woman who was chaste, who was a virgin, who had not known her husband at all. He said, before they came together... He was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So that's his first response. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here's Joseph all of a sudden, in spite of his initial reaction, which is often our initial reaction, how do I get out of this interruption in my life, even if it is God? It seems like such an abrupt interruption into my future, into my plans, and everything else I thought would be normal. The angel comes and says, this is your new normal. This is what life is going to be like for you. Because I'm taking you, just ordinary people. I'm going to do extraordinary things in your life. These are interruptions in their life that they never would have chosen on their own. And so disruptive, so unsettling that one imagines how they could even survive them. And when I think about the Christmas story, I think about the interruptions that God often allows to happen in every life. 
And then the great example of a Joseph and Mary who said, we'll let those interruptions take place as long as we know they're from you. And as long as we know you have a plan and a purpose. And as long as we know what our part is in this plan and this purpose. Let me just tell you something. I, I, don't, I don't think God is going to ask you to do what he asked Mary to do. And I don't think he's going to ask you to do what he asked Joseph to do. But if he asks you to just do something big, he will clearly let you know what he's asking. Amen. And he will clearly give you the opportunity to respond in faith the way Joseph and Mary responded in faith. And I guess the question I have when I look at Joseph and Mary is, are we willing to be stretched the way they were? Are we willing to be challenged to believe God when he speaks into our lives and says that he's going to use us in bigger ways than we can possibly imagine? Part of faith is trusting the God who leads these two in his leading of us. Those are the characters of his story. And then I want you to know some characters of our story. Because this text brings us face-to-face with a couple of incidents that are, I think are important for us in our walk of faith. Look at verse 7. It says, and She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. So here's a verse that shows a manger scene and a stable that we often associate with Christmas. Uh, I've had an artist do some renditions that are in caricature form And uh, we've got one I want you to look at for just a moment. This is the scene that is classically, technically uh, thought of when we think of that line, there's no room for them in the end. If you'll place that up on the screen, and we'll be able to see that. I I want you to look at the innkeeper for just a few moments. That is a, a person that we write into the story. Notice the text doesn't say that there is an innkeeper. It simply says there's no room for them in the inn. And we'll explain that in just a few moments. But we classically have an innkeeper with his hand up saying no. And then you've got Joseph who is looking hopeful and Mary who is clearly pregnant riding on this donkey and then the line below, there's no room for them at the inn. Can you imagine traveling for a great distance while being fully pregnant, nine months pregnant about, and looking for a place to stay. Can you imagine being Joseph and Mary who are both obedient to the Lord, but now things are not working out quite like they wanted in the sense of these doors are not open. This this journey is not easy. This is not something as fun as we had hoped it might be. You know, saying yes to Jesus is not always easy, right? It's not always so easy to say yes, but it's also not Always easy to keep saying yes after you've said yes for the first time. And their journey was a challenging, challenging journey. Now, that's the picture we put up there so that you might see what that looks like. And then the line there, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, let me just give you a little history to this word. And, uh, and I think you're going to appreciate it, even though at first it sounds a little disappointing. There is no real inn in the sense of a motel or a, a hostel. This is not like a businessman standing up and saying, no room for you. But the reality is far more troubling and far more brutal. The word for inn is most often translated guest house. So Joseph's family, uh, the the house of David, had a guest house there in Bethlehem. And while others in his family have already come and already arrived because they're there for the consensus, the same reason everybody's in town is for that, this, this house is full. Most houses at that time had a primary floor for the attendants or the, uh, the people that own the home, the homeowners. 
then you had a guest room that would be the upper room. And, and whenever you had company over, prophets that visited, family members that came, they were in that upper room. And then beneath the main floor of the house was sort of a dugout kind of arrangement for the animals because they always kept their animals near. There were the donkeys and there were the, there were the cows, there were the sheep and so forth. They always kept them close because of theft because of uh, all the animals that would ravage them. So this is what a home would normally look like. And at a time of great visitation, when many people were in town, all your family would come and be up in the guest house, which is the second floor of the house. And the primary floor was occupied by the family that owned the home. And according to this, Joseph and Mary came to the inn or the guest house, and there was no room for them. That's one thing for Motel 6 to be full. It's another thing for your family to say, we've got no room for you. Right. It's the beginning picture of our awareness that even his family rejected and reviled Joseph and Mary and ultimately Jesus. You don't have to look far in the Gospels to see that rejection was very real. That's right. so what we're looking at here in this scene is not just a cartoon image and a kind of an endearing guy, an innkeeper that's somewhat apologetic, I'm sorry, we just don't have room. But actually, probably a family member that says, no, I mean, it doesn't make sense. You two have seen angels, but nobody else has. You two have this story, but we're not sure about that story. Of course, you're looking for a place to stay. It may be a family member that says, you're just getting what you basically deserve, which is nothing. There's room down here that where we keep the animals and you can put the baby in that place where we feed the animals. Wow. I look at that picture and I think he did suffer rejection from early on. A couple of things I want you to carry away. First of all, his first bed reminds us that he can identify with us all in some way. He was laid in a manger. That part's very real. And it reminds us he can identify in every way with us at our best or at our worst. Now, some of you know that uh, I'm a new grandfather. I really didn't do anything except just be, just exist. And all of a sudden, I have a son and his wife, and they have a baby. So now I'm a grandfather, and I'm enjoying my grandfather uh, life. Four months old, our grandbaby is. Yes, you can clap for them and for me. And as soon as we knew this was taking place, um, in typical fashion, my wife decided, okay, we got, a, we got a bedroom upstairs we're not using, and that's going to be the baby's room. <laughs> and so this was an opportunity for us to redecorate that room and set it up for whenever our granddaughter would come over, which she hasn't done overnight yet. We're hoping it'll happen soon, but nonetheless, <laughs> we've got a bed there, we've got toys there, we've got all those things, and, and, uh, and she's going to get the best of the best when she gets to our house, I promise you that. <laughs> In the meantime... Our in-laws have done the same thing with their home. All the consumer reports have been read. All the beds have been purchased. All the toys that are safe and yet stimulating are there ready for the baby to play with when and if she spends the night at their house or at our house. And I think about what we do whenever we have family and whenever we have a granddaughter the way we have, and it's filled with joy. This time it's filled with joy. It's filled with anticipation. We can't wait to be around them. We can't wait to get to hold her. But what I can't imagine is them coming to our home and me saying, we have no room for you. That's what I can't imagine. But that's what happened. And that's where Joseph and Mary end up putting Jesus in a manger. 
because there was no room for him in the guest house. And there he is identifying with us fully, basically homeless. Joseph hadn't had a chance to build a house and prepare it and come back to take her as his bride because she became with child before they ever were able to do that. So basically, they're homeless in the sense of their hometown. They're homeless in the sense of Bethlehem. Now they have no place to stay, just this stable. And I think about that when I think about what Jesus left in order to come be born and placed in that stable. Paul said it like this in Philippians chapter 2. He said, he, according to Christ, he's speaking about Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 said this. He said, Father, now glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, I had all the glory of the Father before I left heaven to be born of this virgin and laid in this manger. I read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 17, the reason for all this. The Bible says, Therefore he had to be made like, made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So he could identify with us and make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus left glory to be born in a manger and laid in a manger so that he could identify fully with you. And that's why Hebrews 4.15 also says, For we do not have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tested in all ways as we are yet without sin. Amen. Identified with us at the greatest time of our life. Identified with us in the worst time of our lives. Because of this, Hebrews goes on and says this. It says, therefore, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we should receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, Amen. he came to be with us, yes. to identify with us so that he could also be for us in all things. That's why he left glory. That's why the manger. That's why the rejection. Because every time you have nothing, you have a Savior who can identify Amen. with you when you have nothing. And every time you are rejected, you have a Savior that can identify with you when you have been rejected because he has been rejected. His first bed reminds us he can identify with us in some way, all of us. When you're at your deepest, darkest moment in life, when you think nobody cares, nobody knows, when you think that there's no answer to your problem, you just remember Jesus emptied himself completely to come live your life in your shoes so that when you come and pray to him and call upon him and lean on him, he is there with you. No matter how dark the day, no matter how deep the pain, he is there with you. Emmanuel, God with us. I want you to see one more thing, though. His first rejection reminds us that people still have no room for Jesus. I mean, Jesus is being rejected right and left in this story, just this piece of it. It's very clear that the family rejected him. As the child grew, 
His family increasingly rejected him. In fact, there are several passages to talk about his half-brothers trying to get him to go up to Jerusalem before it's time, and they want him to be put to death. They want him to die. So this is the rejection that Jesus is suffering. In fact, John opens his gospel by saying he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so often you think about the word his own as being the Jewish people. And while that is true, there's a more intimate setting for that as well. It's not just the Jewish people that were his own. It was his own family that he was born into. So many, so many know what that pain feels like. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. The Gospels tell us that Jesus had no place to lay his head during his earthly ministry, that he was rejected by the chief priests. He was rejected by men as a whole. He was rejected by this generation, Mark tells us. When he cast demons out of the demoniac, the people of the city, the whole village came out because their business was disrupted. He cast the demons into the herd of swine, if you remember that. And they were so angry that they entreated him to leave. Please leave us alone, they said to Jesus, who later died on the cross for them. Everybody missed it when it came to Jesus. The Jews were offended at him. Cities were offended at him and ran him out of town. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the Gentiles and the Samaritans and the Romans and the Jews alike all missed it when it came to knowing who the Messiah is. Nearly every single one missed it. And I don't want you to miss it. It's so possible for you to know the Christmas story and yet also possible that you have not Put your hope and trust and faith in this one who is born to identify with you later on to die on a cross for you and pay for your sins. It's possible that you know about Jesus in caricature form and you know the cartoon figures of the innkeeper saying no, the Joseph and the Mary on the donkey and no room at the end. But you don't know the one who's the center of that story, Jesus. The same verse, same passage that says he came to his own, his own did not receive him, goes on and says, but as many as did receive him, to them he became, gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Amen. It's possible to not accept him, but then it's possible to change your mind right. and to accept him. As many as believed him, as many as accepted him to to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. Amen. Dear friend, today I want to tell you that you don't want to miss Jesus the way so many have. You don't want to sing the songs and read the story and see the caricatures and the pictures and all the things that remind you of the nostalgia and the good feelings and, and everything else that a great carol will do for you. You don't, you don't want to walk away with feelings and without faith in Jesus. You want to make sure your faith is in him. And you want to make sure that you've accepted the gift of eternal life that he came to bring you. In just a few moments, I'm going to close in prayer. And as I do, we have our decision stations open. I want to invite you to stop and talk with someone about this most significant decision of your life to push your faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for a word of prayer? Before I pray, three invitations to give you. Stop by the guest, the decision station and have that life-changing conversation, number one. Number two, I want to encourage you 
to come to the guest reception room if you are visiting today. I'd love to meet you and tell you some things about our church. Number three, I want you to invite people to come back with you tonight for the, for the search for baby Jesus. It's, a, it's an incredible event. And also invite them back next week as we continue to walk through Luke 1 and 2. Father, in Jesus' name, we are so grateful to you for loving us enough to send your son. And Lord, today we want to celebrate that and we want to rejoice in that, but we also want to place our faith and trust and confidence in Jesus Christ fully, the way Mary did, the way Joseph did. And Lord, I thank you for their examples of faith. Help us follow those examples and believe. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.